the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, covering monetary, economic, and geopolitical news events. As we exist in a stagflationary environment and contemplate stepping a first foot into recession, Congress's way of dealing with these anxieties and pressors is to consider an extra $400 billion in spending and a tax increase of $739 billion. It sounds like genius at work. Now here are Kevin Oreck and David McIlvaney. Welcome to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. Well, you know, this is the day you've been waiting for, at least I have. I wanted to hear how the trip to France was and what is it like to ride a bike up the Alpe de Huez, a 10% grade Sometimes I think it's 10% plus. What was that like, Dave, this last weekend? (laughs) Well, there were parts of it that were magnificent and beautiful, and there were parts of it that were absolutely brutal, and just one pedal stroke at a time was all I was responsible for. You know, one of the reasons I like to do races like this is because so much of my life is focused in the present moment. It's that healthy balance to sort of find a future focus and have some aspirational goals that are way out on the horizon and require some daily disciplines. Because, you know, the daily grind of operating within the financial markets can have you so focused on this day and this moment in the here and now that I just think it's a healthy balance to be very present, but also have some attention put on something that is months or even years ahead. And this was so beautiful. Again, I I can't imagine a more beautiful course. The French Alps, I'd love to go back. I don't know if I'll do that race again. (laughs) There's probably like childbirth. There's enough pain associated with it. I think uh, I'm probably fine for now. (laughs) But we'll see. (laughs) One of the things I love about you, Dave, is we're learning, especially right now with our leadership, talk is cheap, follow through is everything. And while you were doing the race, my wife and I were replacing a propane tank. We have a 500 gallon propane tank because in the wintertime, that's how we heat the house. And of course the stove uses the propane and the hot water heater. So propane's critical. And we had a company who would fill our tank that we thought was local. And over time, they just sort of went away and they didn't tell us. So it's just interesting, the difference between follow through. When you say you're going to go do a race, you do it and you follow through. It's not like uh, going and buying an exercise bike and giving it to the thrift store a year later. What we finally had to do, my wife and I, we would make calls and say, hey, when are you going to fill the propane tank? And they'd say, oh, well, we'll be there on Tuesday. And it's like, all right. They weren't there on Tuesday. Then we'd call and say, you told us you would be there on Tuesday. Oh, no, no, we'll, we'll be there on Thursday. Well, this happened a few times. And this winter, it actually became very tense because we realized there was no real follow through. And, you know, I bring that up, Dave, because if you say you're going to do something, you need to do it. And that applies not just to racing, not just to propane tanks, which we switched companies who actually does follow through, but that applies even to geopolitical events. You look at what's going on with the Ukraine, and a lot of talk is going on with the Ukraine. China's watching closely right now. Bill Burns, the head of the CIA, said that that's going to be critical. Are we going to follow through or what's the world doing with uh, Ukraine? And what does that look like in relation to Taiwan? 
which China has on their radar. I'm not sure why, but you've got two of the free world's top spy chiefs talking to the Financial Times about their views on China and on Russia and Ukraine. And nevertheless, like you say, Bill Burns, now head of the CIA, suggests that the Chinese have learned. They have learned from Ukraine that if they choose to move on Taiwan, it would be with overwhelming force and with a quick and decisive victory in mind. And then counterpart at MI6, Richard Moore, similarly reflects on the Chinese observations there in Ukraine, suggesting that it's critical for the West to hold the line on Ukraine through the winter for what that communicates to the Chinese. Yeah, I had a client yesterday tell me, did you see what the People's Liberation Army released uh, in relation to Pelosi's visit? This provocative video in advance of the visit, and you go through it, and it just kind of doesn't end. It's minute after minute after minute of military firepower in every respect. It's by land, by air, by sea, overwhelming force. And it really does convey a certain severity. So I think that just backs up what Xi Jinping was warning to Biden to not play with fire. You know, which raises the question, why is Nancy even going to Taiwan? Yeah, isn't it strange, Dave? You've got the stock market over here. I mean, you've got the Chinese literally threatening, okay, with the Pelosi visit. And yet you have a rally in the stock market right now. Is talk cheap right now, or is there follow-through? Yeah, maybe Nancy's there to organize a private placement with Taiwan Semiconductor. <laughs> I mean, who knows? <laughs> I, I jest. The reality is probably more theatrical. We could call her Kabuki Nance from now and going forward as she heads towards retirement. Pelosi needs a smokescreen for the Paul and, and Nancy Semiconductor pump and dump scheme. We talked about that a few weeks ago with NVIDIA. And they've been called out publicly on that by some very significant public figures. The reality is there's no legitimate reason for a soon-to-be-retiring legislator to meet with the Taiwanese president. You know, this is the top leading U.S. official to have stepped foot on the island in 25 years, particularly with tensions between the two countries so high. So I think she will be, I think she has been and should be remembered as one of the most self-serving U.S. politicians of all time. I'm not sure I'd worry about anything more than saber-rattling as the CCP is likely to respect the value of their asset and, and, and allow her to depart country before getting any more aggressive. Dave, the IMF has lowered its growth outlook globally, and it's very concerned about inflation. The central banks are making different kinds of statements, though. And, you know, I'm just wondering, five years ago, the central banks could speak and they just assumed the markets were going to react to them. The markets would believe whatever they said, but they had the ability to print. We didn't have the inflation problem. Do you think the central banks are still operating as if it was five years ago where they can just tell anybody anything and they just hope that we've had peak inflation, hope that we're not going to have a recession? Hope against hope against hope, but they're speaking differently than the IMF. You know, when you hear that story of the king who doesn't have any clothes on, there is the reality of being sort of garment free. And the crowd begins to realize something at some point. I think actually the, the central bank community at this point is assuming a lot about their credibility and about the perception of who they are and, and the clothes that they wear. 
So they're operating with a certain bravado almost or confidence that is unfounded given how the communities around them, we're talking about the business community, the household community, and even government operators outside of the central banks have already begun to question their legitimacy. So the IMF has lowered its growth outlooks globally. You're right. It's increased its outlook on inflation. And they now see economic prospects everywhere, to quote them directly, overwhelmingly tilted to the downside, as is reported in the Financial Times. You contrast that with central banks that hope, Kevin, they just hope that peak inflation has already occurred. The IMF has raised its inflation expectations by a full point for this year and next year. Interestingly, if you look at the top economist at the IMF, he does not think the forthcoming economic environment will be stagflationary like the 1970s. It will not be stagflationary. Again, I don't know where he gets this, but we're already there. But he bases this, and this was a really interesting view of an economist judging fellow economists. He bases the low probability of a stagflationary environment like the 70s on there being more credibility with central banks, that they've maintained more credibility in this period than in the 1970s. And that just strikes me as odd and inaccurate as an assumption in his argument. So in our view, and we see this as a growing issue, central bank credibility hangs by a thread. Yeah, that's why I think they're probably living in their own bubble, Dave. We don't have a Volcker right now who's raising rates that actually exceed inflation. In fact, they're, they're acting as if they've raised rates enough and we're still, what, negative 7% based on the inflation that's now being reported. But Arthur Burns, uh, go to Arthur Burns with his redefinitions. Yeah, if you wanted to say that Jay Powell and Madame Inflation, Madame Lagarde, have more legitimacy than the central bankers of the 1970s, I guess you could say that the very low bar comparison to an Arthur Burns or a George William Miller, it's almost not a fair comparison. So perhaps there is a bit more credibility with Jay Powell than an Arthur Burns, but that's a very low bar comparison. But I think if we're discussing central bank chiefs and economists that you have this view, arguing for credibility now versus then is very much like arguing for U.S. dollar legitimacy today. On a relative basis, you could argue the U.S. dollar is strong, but in absolute terms, it's a very challenged currency. So the reality is that Powell is no Volcker, and it was Volcker that resolved the last period of higher inflation. We have a hope and pray Federal Reserve team in place today. That's their strategy, which is hardly better than the Burns and Miller Keystone Cops duo. If you want to argue for real credibility in central banking, you've got to roll the clock back to look at William McChesney Martin, who followed the Burns-Miller duo back to Volcker. Then you can make the case for credibility in central banking. Credibility in central banking sometimes is like getting hit upside the head by a two by four. I see no reason to shift perspectives from a stagflationary outcome being highly probable. In fact, you could argue it's here now. Linking persistent above-target inflation rates with declining global and domestic growth, we've got it. From that same IMF discussion, there was a chart showing successive forecasts on headline and core inflation going back to January of 2021. And in every instance, in every instance up to the present, 
there was an overly rosy expectation of the central bank community's ability to deliver and keep inflation in check. So overly rosy expectations of both a, a very short duration for inflation as a problem, low levels of inflation, proven to be well under the actual numbers. So no one wants to drive against a consensus of positive thinking, having already committed to a future belief that it just can't be that bad. And that's where the Fed has landed. It's not going to be that bad. It's not going to be that bad. And, and it turns out to be <laughs> worse than expected. That's where follow through is so important, Dave. We lean on these 21st century tools, but in reality, are they really 21st century tools? Is the printing of money out of nowhere a 21st century tool and then the manipulation of interest rates? I have a series of books from Winston Churchill, the History of the English-Speaking People. And in the first volume, he talks about hordes of gold that was found in England, buried around 300, 400 AD, because the Roman Empire, they were debasing their currency to the point where it had virtually no gold in it. You know, they were adding copper. So are these new tools, these 21st century tools, or is this just another way of saying, hey, we can print money, now shut up and listen? When I think of 21st century tools, I'm probably thinking of the people who are the tools and not the policies. This is maybe a different definition of tools. I think noteworthy Kevin, in the last two weeks, uh, speaking of policy shifts, you've got both the European Central Bank and the Fed moving away from forward guidance. And I think that's fairly significant, given the fact that this was one of the tools that they said, and have said and used for decades now, would guide the market and allow there to be no more upsets. Now they're saying, no, we're just going to go meeting to meeting. We're not going to project forward it's going to be a little more hush-hush. So no more invitations for the market to front-run policy shifts. That's pretty intriguing, I think. Yeah, it reminds me when Greenspan used to speak, he purposely didn't tell people what he was planning on doing. And, you know, you go back from there. You can talk a market only so long. You have to start doing. And so with this rally, in the recent weeks, why don't you address the rally a little bit? Because oftentimes people will say, well, gosh, if it's so obvious, how come people are buying stock? No, I think this is the normal part of a market deterioration. We've had a significant first half decline, and we are getting a powerful rally. Very tepid in recent weeks. Our last commentaries talked about how the rally attempts have not followed through, not followed through, not followed through. Last week was a bit different. Yes, a rally needs to occur, and that's what we've been suggesting for some time now. It's now, or else there's going to be a pretty aggressive acceleration to the downside. And we're getting it. Bear market rallies are sharp. They're generally short. Looking at the NASDAQ 100, we rebounded in the last few weeks of July by close to 13%. And that was intriguing to me, a counter-trend rally in the equities markets, and we'll have to see how far it goes. Uh, what kind of energy it can kind of create. But, you know, what we also had, Kevin, is a precious metals rally and an attempt to break a three-and-a-half-month consolidation following that peak back in March. You know, speaking of talking and follow-through, for years you have talked about the Summers-Barsky thesis. Larry Summers was the Summers in that thesis. And as you've brought out in the past, he basically wrote with Barsky an essay saying that if you've got high inflation, interest rates are going to have to go beyond a certain point 
for gold not to be the go-to item. You know, Larry Summers has been speaking very frankly here in 2021 and 2022, which is unusual, Dave, because when he was in positions of authority, oftentimes we didn't get that same level of frankness. What are your thoughts of Larry Summers right now and his criticisms of the central bank? Well, you're right. I do think it's an important read, Gibson's Paradox and the Summers-Barsky thesis. And here recently, I continue to be impressed by Larry Summers. Pretty contrarian in 2021 with some of his perspectives, and it continues to be in 2022. Uh, No punches have been pulled in his response last week to Jerome Powell, as Powell was asserting that we are already close to a neutral interest rate. It was meaningful, and it was necessarily sharp. Of course, the neutral rate is that theoretical level at which interest rates are neither a drag on the economy or overly stimulative. And Summers said, there's no conceivable way that 2.5% interest rates in an economy like this is anywhere neutral. And what I love is he holds Powell to his own standard. He says, Powell said in 2018 that the Fed's rate had reached neutral 2.5% when inflation was just below 2%. How could he be saying the same thing today when the inflation rate is where it is? It's inexplicable to me. If you think it is neutral, you're misjudging the posture of policy in a fundamental way. It's the same kind of, and this is what Summers says, to be blunt, wishful thinking that got us into the problems we have now with the use of the term transitory. So again, Kevin, I return to the IMF's assessment that the central bank community stands tall on this stage of credibility, right? And that's why it's going to be so different. And we're not going to have stagflation because of how credible our central banks are. And Summer's like, don't say things that are laughable if you want to maintain credibility. And of course, it's not just the Fed. Lagarde is fighting inflation, quote unquote, fighting inflation with rates at 0%. Seriously, you get the Bank of Japan, How credible are they in an environment where the yen has lost 25% of its value in a six-month period? So we can try to define reality with a few words, but a direct experience of the external world brings us right back to the harshness of this environment. Well, and that's what I was sharing with the propane tank, Dave. The direct experience that we had was that we didn't have propane. And yet we were getting words that were saying, oh, yeah, we're fine. We'll have it by Tuesday or what have you. So the harsh reality is that we are negative real rate. I mean, how far negative are we? If we just take the government official number for inflation, which I think right now CPI is 8.8%, how negative are we? Yeah, so if you want to know how much stimulation there still is in the economy and how absurd that notion of being neutral in interest rate terms we actually are, You take the two-year interest rate, and this is just sort of back of the napkin. It sits close to 3%. The Fed funds rate sits at its new target of 2.5 to 2.75. Oh, wait, the most recent inflation number was 9.1%. So we remain negative in terms of real rates, negative real rates of greater than 6%. That is not an effective strategy for ending inflation. That is not neutral. That is, in fact, by any historical standard, wildly accommodative. Negative real rates of greater than 6%, if that's what you want to describe as neutral, then perhaps the credibility issue is going to get worse before it gets better. Well, and we haven't even brought up the word, oh, I 
not supposed to say it, recession. Remember when recession was a bad word and what was it replaced with? Banana, I, I think. But we haven't even brought up the fact that we've had two negative quarters, two negative quarters with GDP down. If anybody else were in office, I think we'd hear that we were in a recession right now. You know, that might be history that our listeners aren't aware of, but the absurdity of trying to speak something into existence or out of existence today, it echoes from the same period of time, 1970s. So thanks to Bill King for his reference from the Washington Post on this one. But the current word forbidden from polite circles, at least the the polite circles in the Oval Office, is is the word recession. You're not supposed to mention it. It's not here. It's not a reality. (laughs) Makes people feel uncomfortable. And it makes an election cycle far more volatile just months away, as you know. People who are experiencing recession, attempt to lay blame on others for the plight that they experience. And this was true back in the 70s as much as it is today. Then you had economist Alfred Kahn. He was working for Jimmy Carter, uh, our favorite president, the peanut farmer at the time, and instructed to drop the word recession from any formal writing or speaking because it seemed to make people nervous or irritable, including the president at that time. Carter. So, you know, if you think about Carter, there's actually some similarities between Carter and Biden. I'm not, I'm not suggesting they're the same on the scale of decent human beings. They're definitely on a different scale in that respect. But they do reflect a lot of each other in terms of effective leadership in the Oval Office. <laughs> they're like two peas in a pod. So Khan substituted the word banana, as you mentioned, for the word recessions. So, I mean, and just think of this, the absurdity here. That's how it was credibly handled in the 70s. The nation was, at that time, in danger of the worst banana in 45 years. We just don't want you to feel triggered or nervous or irritable. And yeah, this is just classic politics. You try to shift the emphasis, shift the focus, and have people focus on what they should be thinking about. Hoover tried the same tactic. He started using the word depression was actually one of the first to describe an economic malaise as a depression because he thought that was a better word for panic. (laughs) You know, you talk about panic and panic kind of says, oh, well, why are people panicking? If there's a panic, should I be panicking too? Well, this is only a depression. And of course, now we know from the 30s, depression's even worse than recession. (laughs) I don't know what happens when we can't use the word banana anymore. I know when my wife and I disagree, oftentimes she says, Kevin, trust me, it's science. I look at the economy right now, and I look at the speaking around the economy and the financial markets, like what you're talking about, banana versus recession, panic, being replaced by the word depression. What it does is it puts science aside. We've been told, going back to GDP, dropping two quarters in a row, that would be a recession in anybody's book except for right now. So whether Powell is speaking of a neutral rate or we've got in the White House, them avoiding the word recession, isn't science science? Isn't economics a form of science? Yeah, I mean, it is just interesting. You know, a decline in gross national product in two consecutive quarters is the technical definition of a recession. We've had two quarters of decline, uh, 1.6 in the first quarter and 0.9 annualized for the second quarter. So it is what it is. Maybe there's some complexity relating to the employment markets and labor markets, but we can at least call it what people have always called it. And people think of you as having gone nuts or having gone banana. Your credibility is not based actually on ignoring reality, but on responding appropriately to it. 
whether you like it or not. And that's the problem is when you ignore reality, that's when people are like, ah, he's, he's gone nuts. When you ignore the facts and those facts are staring you in the face, it's a problem to your point. I think it's an irony of our time that between science and math and economic conventions, they are conveniently leaned on when it serves a political objective. And in turn, they are ignored and undermined when science, math, or economic conventions undermine a preferred narrative. So what is truth? Who cares? Who cares in a struggle for power? Who cares what the truth is? Which is why those, you know, again, economic conventions and science and mathematics, they become more pliable <laughs> when pressured politically. So Orwell was both an insightful commentator on power struggles and on freedom in many of his books. But 1984, from that book comes the quote, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears it was their final and most essential command. Yeah, we read that as an office, Dave. I remember when we all not only read the book, but got together and discussed it. So just a repeat of that quote, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and your ears. It was their final and most essential command. Have we arrived at that, Dave? There will be no recession, Kevin. And two consecutive quarters of economic decline can now be set aside as a working definition of recession. You will be informed by the party of the appropriate understanding of recession in due time. So we're going to also ignore the fact that inventories are rising very, very quickly. As we were driving around this weekend, we could see that lots that used to sell motorhomes and campers that were almost empty a year or two ago of inventory because everything was selling as soon as they got it. They're just packed with inventory now. So are we allowed to say that? Is that part of the narrative that uh, the party will not allow us to speak of? <laughs> I think you need to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears, Kevin, and you'll be better off. You'll understand the political reality of our time. Just reject what you see and wait for further instruction. The Wall Street Journal had this to say this last week. The U.S. economy shrank at a 0.9% annual rate last quarter that marks a second straight quarterly decline in GDP, a common definition of recession. Businesses trimmed their inventories, the housing market buckled under rising rates, and high inflation took steam out of consumer spending. And it's fascinating because we came into this year with a huge inventory build, and now you've got a panic amongst retailers to do something about it, a real motivator to get rid of inventories. In Q4, of 2021, inventory surged $1.193 trillion. That accounted for 5.35% of the GDP growth that we had for the year, 6.9% for the year, 5.35% of it came from inventory growth. Then in the first quarter of this year, inventories continue to increase, but at a much slower pace, 188 billion. Q2 comes around and it's at 81.6 billion. It's nice to see the inventories building at a slower pace, but retailers are in an interesting place. Inventories are built now and they need to be blown out in part to make room for the 2022 retail year end holiday push. And this is the time where those orders are coming through. So the stuff that has sat stagnant has got to go. 
I remember being in retail and how the purchasing managers who were buying that inventory that you're talking about, they really were buying six to nine months ahead of time. Being in the toy business, I was in hardware and then I was in toys. But being in the toy business, most of the toys that would sell that next Christmas had already been purchased by April. So again, you can have politicians talking things down and saying, don't use the word recession. But when you have business managers and purchasing managers who are saying, you know what, we have to adjust our behavior because they have to look six to nine months, even a year out, to see what they see coming. And it seems that the business managers and the purchasing managers have already seen recession coming, going back to last year. Yeah, that's true. Last week's PMIs, the purchasing manager indices, speaking of recessionary indicators, you had new orders, which continued to slip. You had inventories, which continued to increase. And you had prices paid, which were continuing to decline. So not all good news from the PMIs. And of course, those are U.S. purchasing manager indexes. And we had the same from China, slipping below 50, which is not a good indicator. Japan, also negative numbers on their purchasing managers indexes. And in Germany, this was, again, just another case of the worst in several years. You know, Kevin, it's tough. It's tough. If you're thinking about how the consumer behaves, what they're interested in buying, what their expectation is of delivery of a product, COVID has made retail a treacherous, a treacherous area. How do you order to meet the needs of a very fickle public? who want a lot today, don't necessarily want any tomorrow, and whose preferences may change from one week to the next. So how do you order ahead for that? And we can't do the just-in-time inventory management anymore. So I don't envy. I don't envy a Walmart. I don't envy an Amazon. But I think they're set up for uh, real significant challenges going forward. Back to recession, we can wait for the National Bureau of Economic Research to post-date a recession, which sometimes takes them as much as six to 12 months. I can guarantee you we won't have any news from them until after November, but the inflation piece is already there. It's irrefutable. If you want to say, well, maybe we're going to have a recession, maybe we're not. <laughs> Technically, we're already there. But let's give Mr. Biden the benefit of the doubt and say, no, 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 we got the memo. We don't speak of such things. The inflation piece is irrefutable. And the GDP piece, the declining economic activity, well, that's there too. Last time I checked, if you've got high rates of inflation and declining economic activity, it pretty well spells stagflation. I don't think that's theoretical. I don't think that's arguable. I don't think that's a technical definition versus you know needing to include a more nuanced discussion of labor and what have you. But I think what's particularly interesting is as we exist in a stagflationary environment and contemplate stepping a first foot into recession, Congress's way of dealing with these anxieties and pressors is to consider an extra $400 billion in spending and a tax increase of $739 billion. It sounds like genius at work. Isn't it amazing you can't run a household that way? Kids were out of money, so let's go spend some. But you look at the timing of this, Dave, raising rates into a recession and now raising taxes into a recession. I mean, you can say you're going to spend, but you got to bring the money in somehow. Yeah. Raising rates into a recession. Let's see how that works out. Raising taxes as we head into a recession. As you know, the $739 billion, this is kind of a, a shaped down, trimmed down version, a rehashed version 
of Biden's Build Back Better program. So let's see how that works out. Manchin was on all the news networks Sunday, five different news networks claiming that the spending bill would not raise taxes, but it does. And again, sort of back to an abuse of language, I think what galls me more than anything is our legislative branch launching a new spending initiative and boldly calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. That, that to me, I mean, in what ways does a tax increase and nearly $800 billion increase in spending contribute to reducing inflation? I think that shows total disregard for their constituents. It's an insult to their constituents. And I think it's consistent with an elitist attitude towards deplorables and useful idiots. That's the position that politicians take. They can say what they want. They can do what they want. There are no consequences. You'll believe what you're told. If you're on the wrong side of the aisle, you're a deplorable. If you're on the right side of the aisle, they don't respect your intelligence. You're treated as a useful idiot. And I think we're ready for significant change in Washington. As I've told you many times before, I care not for either side of the aisle, but just the attitude and the condescension is getting too much for me. Well, and you know, we're just talking about the reduction of inflation, you know, calling it whatever you want to call it, but the CHIPS Act, okay? That CHIPS Act, you had brought it up earlier, and you look at Paul and Nancy Pelosi, that passed, and they were playing the stocks. They were playing the stocks like insiders, weren't they? Uh, they were playing with insider information. I mean, this is a $280 billion, the CHIPS Act, so that we can build, compete directly with the Chinese and the Taiwanese, build out our semiconductor capacity here in the United States in an acknowledgement of the ruling class's gross misstep. You've got Richard Fisher, who's the previous Dallas Fed chief, says quite critically, I'm sorry to see that Paul Pelosi and Nancy Pelosi and others appear to have taken advantage of inside information. Well, again, you know this, we talked about it on the commentary several weeks ago, the purchase of NVIDIA shares just before this goes to being approved. $280 billion legislative boondoggle. Others know of the gross abuse of insider information that has built the wealth of our political elite over the last several decades. What do you find? Investigations? No. Suits? Lawsuits? SEC? Sniffing here and there? No. No slap on the wrist. Your only real risk today, if your politician is not being on the right side of history, as defined by the party in power, in which case Biden has probably likely passed your name to the Department of Justice for political targeting already. That's not just my opinion. Richard Grinnell, you know, the, the former acting director of national intelligence, he tweets last week, Joe Biden turned the Department of Justice into a Democrat hit squad on Republicans. Prosecuting your political enemies is a hallmark of third world fascists. But again, there's different sets of rules. And this is what's bothersome to me. We're playing with the potential for and with circumstances that have repercussions up to and including war. And Nancy's doing her theatrics in Taiwan as a smokescreen for insider trading. It's appalling. It's the epitome of corruption. We shouldn't tolerate it. I can't believe 
that we have such tolerance. And maybe we're so concerned about our own lives that we're just disconnected from the political spheres. But things are ratcheting up in terms of levels of corruption. And now we're willing to even entertain a politician that has no need to be in Taiwan and potentially bring us to the brink of war. For what? For what? She should be ashamed. Dave, as I replay just you know what we've been talking about, inflation, national debt, corruption, I have to think of the fall of the Roman Empire again. You know, I brought it up earlier, uh, what Churchill was writing, that the Brits were storing up gold as the Roman Empire fell. What would I hand my son or my daughter if I had to give them something that I knew would have value going forward? It would be a gold coin, and I've done that, and I've explained that to them, that in any generation, any generation for thousands of years, if you handed your child a gold coin, that was a way of getting through a lot of this garbage that we're talking about, inflation, national debt, corruption, what have you. It's a preserver of wealth like none other. Yeah, can you imagine? Just think of this as a thought experiment. You open up great grandpa's cigar box, and in that box is a stack of treasury bonds, and you're thrilled. It's been sitting there for 100 years. Or, or try this. It's not bonds. It's just currency. You've got a cigar box full of $100 bills. And a hundred years later, you open this up and you're just thinking to yourself, wow, what a find. A box full of $100 cigars. I probably would enjoy those more. <laughs> I meant $100 bills. Um, no, or, or the third alternative, a box full of gold coins. We get it if we stretch time out far enough. So back to inflation, back to interest rates and our national debt. Yeah, I mean, another reason to consider gold as sort of a ballast asset in a portfolio. You look at the last week, we tested this key level, 1675, and in a week's time, we've bounced $100 higher. I wouldn't rule out a retest, but that proved to be a critical support level, as expected. As interest rates adjust, you have higher budgetary strains exerted on the Treasury. Ed Yardini used a chart of Fed funds going back to 1960, and it shows just inching off the lows. We've come down to all-time lows, and we've just barely come off those all-time lows. And that's about what we can afford from a revenue standpoint. The Treasury can take the pain of 2.5%, but if tax revenue is sitting right around $4 trillion, and an average you know, interest cost on our debt is 1%. You're talking about something in the neighborhood of 6% of all tax revenue goes to paying interest. At an average of 3% interest on our national debt, you're going to gobble up 18% of all tax revenues. And if you go back to something that's really not uncommon and not particularly high, but interest payments on the national debt at 6%, then you're talking about something that's over 35% of all tax revenue. 35% of all tax revenue just going to interest payments. So, Kevin, somewhere between 3 and 6%, the dollar goes to hell. And, and so your box of treasury bonds, your box of dollar bills, $100 bills, what are they worth to you? Will central banks let us get there, a 3 to 6% interest rate? 
<laughs> Does an interim recession bring rates down further only to see them catapult higher later on? As I look at the world, I see a world of fragile confidences, of gross manipulations of reality, and a bending of truth to the whims of power. Having some small stake in a world of solid and tangible things makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. I want to own real assets and move as far away as possible from the unreal valuations and values of the present era. You've been listening to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. You can find us at McIlvaney.com, M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y.com. And you can call us at 800-525-9556. This has been the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. The views expressed should not be considered to be a solicitation or a recommendation for your investment portfolio. You should consult a professional financial advisor to assess your suitability for risk and investment. Join us again next week for a new edition of the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary.